Music from Glenn Jones there right here on Free Association, WZBC, 90.3 Boston College. That's his new record, Fleeting, and Glenn Jones is here. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. And uh, this is a, an amazing record. I guess this is your sixth, is that right? Uh, sixth solo sixth record, sol- not counting a few... Uh uh, split LPs and things like that. Right, right. I mean, there's so much, there's so much to, to to unpack here. So, I wanted to ask you about this this record and the kind of the way it was recorded because a lot of these, uh, this record and the last one too. I know there's such a great sense of environment, and I wonder. And I saw that Laura Laura Baird uh, recorded and engineered this, and mm-hmm. and she's going to be performing on your show coming up at Atwoods. Do you want to talk about how this was, the, how the, where this was recorded, and give people a sense of a sure, sense of place? sure. Uh, actually, the um, it was when I made my second record, which is called Against Which the Sea Continually Beats. It was recorded out on uh, Martha's Vineyard. And um, I'd made a number of records with uh, my band, Cul-de-Sac, and I'd done a solo record uh, before the, the second album. But it was with that record that I kind of learned that um, where and when I make a record and who I'm making it with are maybe more important than any other uh, consideration. And um, The context of it. Exactly, yeah, yeah, right, and right. It was, uh, it was at Martha's Vineyard. I mean, it was, uh, it was off season, so it was the, the time of year. The days were long. It was really uh, just beautiful and mild. And where we were was in the southern part of the island. And the, the guy was recording it, and kind of, uh, Anthony Esposito recorded it in kind of an attic studio and all that. And it just, um, it's just a, a great way to record. I really don't like studios. I don't like the. Uh, the feeling of the clock ticking. I don't like the the walls with no windows in them and uh, that kind of antiseptic feeling. So I, I very quickly came to the conclusion that that it was worth sacrificing whatever um, you know um, sound quality you might be giving up to record in a place that was uh, comfortable and relaxed and had some character and that um, possibly some of that character might seep into the recording. It um, makes sense. I mean, because you know, you're not dealing with a band here. It's no, solo. No. It's solo guitar, and it's also the the music is has a has that sense of play. It's coming through in the music. It's also giving you a vibe, in terms of your performance. So it it totally makes sense. But I I know what you mean about the antiseptic thing. If you can escape that somehow, yeah, then yeah. that's going to inform the recording. You know? Well, because I was in a band for so many years, uh, Cul-de-Sac did uh, nine records, and uh, more than half of them were studio. Um, studio albums, right. and so I got very used to to that studio experience. And I have to say, I very seldom looked forward to that. <laughs> it was sort of like, okay, how right. can we try to forget that we're in a studio for a while and just um, kind of be here now? <laughs> right, that's a very hard thing to pull off. It is yeah. a hard thing to right. pull off, especially when, uh, as I say, you're watching the clock on the wall and uh, you're counting your dollars and, uh, right. and all that you're stuff. Right, paying per day and all this kind of thing. Right. But you mentioned uh, you mentioned Laura Baird. Uh, Laura, I met Laura. Well, I don't know. We had to kind of go back to uh, Jack Rose. You know, um, Jack. Uh, I guess we'll talk about Jack some as sure, we yeah. as we go on. But uh, Jack was a, a key person uh, in terms of my becoming a solo uh, guitar performer. I met Jack in two thousand three at a festival, and Jack was at that time living in um, Maryland. And 
it was the first time that I became aware that there were younger players who had kind of uh, grown up with the same records that had been so important to me, like uh, those old John Fahey and Robbie Basho Tacoma right. records from the 60s and 70s. And uh, as soon as I heard Jack, I thought, here's a guy that's just been living, sleeping, eating, um, you know, been with those records, spent a lot of time with those records, as I did. And Jack as uh, was living in Frederick, but uh, Maryland, but then moved to Philly. And some of the first shows I did with Jack after we became friends were in the Philadelphia area. And Philly at that time was, uh, there was just, I mean, there's always been a strong musical uh, scene there, Bardo Pond and Chris Forsyth, and but at the time Jack was there as well as those other people, and um, Laura Baird and her band Espers were living there oh, too. Espers, and so that. there was just a very electric scene. I mean, you'd go there and everybody would come out to these shows, and there was just a wonderful feeling there. So through Jack, I met uh, Meg Baird, and through Meg, I met her sister Laura. And um, Laura and I became friends. We were hired to work together on a, um, uh, we performed live to a Buster Keaton uh, oh, silent nice. film in, uh, in, in uh, Pennsylvania. Did you compose that ahead of time or was it just live? No, we got Impro- together improvised. We got together, and we, we both had pieces that had already been written that we kind of worked into the soundtrack of the film. But it was in the course of getting that, we had about maybe a month of um, rehearsals in New Jersey, uh, Laura and I. And um, so we just kind of got used to working with other, with each other. And where we were working at Forest Hill Farms, which is where she was living with her husband, Les, at the time, was just so comfortable. It was about a quarter mile off the nearest road. There were lots of um, woods and rivers and nice. rivers and streams nearby. It was quiet. Uh, you'd hear dogs barking and And you thought, well, this barking. might be nice to record here. Right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so I ended up making uh, the album My Garden State uh, with Laura at Forest Hills Farms, and that kind of replicated a bit the experience of recording at Martha's Vineyard. I see. And so um, after making My Garden State, which I, I think is a success and owes a lot of its success to Laura Baird's uh, work and resourcefulness and her willingness to just do any half-cracked idea that I came up with, you know, um, that I kind of decided this is a person that I want in my corner making uh, all my albums. So when it came time to do the new album, I said, you you can pick out wherever you want to yeah, record. Right. Once you and, find people like that, absolutely yeah, stay yeah. stay with them, right? Yeah, so uh, Laura found the, um, the, the spot that we ended up uh, uh, recording, which was just off the Delaware uh, River. And I mean, it was right on, um, we were right on the stream, on the river. I mean, mm. if I took two nice. steps out the back door, I was in the water. <laughs> That's you know? great. That's great. And so it was hot enough that the, the windows were open. So bird sounds and bird songs and whatnot were creeping in on the recordings. And that's fine with me. You know, and you I, can hear some of that in this, in yeah, this, in this record. You, know, you can hear some of the out. I know on the sounds. second track, Endurance Vile, you can hear some birds chattering away in the nice. background there. And, um, and I like that. I mean, for, I make my records for me as much as I make them for anybody else. And I like, when I, when I hear them, I like, um, I don't know, remembering uh, the time of year and where I was and just yeah. to feel the environment and all that. And you don't, you never think about that stuff when you record in the studio. That's right. You, know? yeah. you don't get that element of, of, of no, now and no. place and, and that in there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, we should play another track off of this. And uh, you recommended Mother's Day. And I, I read somewhere that this... 
this was dedicated to your mother. Yeah, Is that right? um, when I had been working with uh, Laura in New Jersey for on my garden state, uh, my mom, who had Alzheimer's, was in a, uh, a nursing home in New Jersey, and so I was spending months at a time down there. Me and my my other I have four sisters, and we would sort of take turns looking after my mom in her old childhood home. And the reason that album was called My Garden State is most of the stuff on that album uh, was re- was written while I was down down there looking after my mom. And so uh, my mom died between that album and this one. And uh, the song Mother's Day was the song that I was working on when my sister Erin called me up and said my mom had died wow, that night. Wow. And uh, so I knew that um, <laughs> I knew that no matter what I named the song and whatever, that it would always have that association uh, for me. Wow. And so, yeah, so this is Mother's Day. That's great. That's great. So this is uh, uh, Mother's Day off of Glenn Jones's record, Fleeting. Glenn Jones is here. This is Free Association, WZBC 90.3.
right there from Glenn Jones off of his record My Garden State that was across the Tappan Zee and before that uh, the piece Mother's Day from his new record Fleeting Glenn Jones is here 
And we should talk about um, this show coming up with you and Laura Baird, and that was you and Laura on that, that yeah. track just there. I play the I play the finger style banjo in there, and Laura plays uh, kind of old timey claw hammer style, right. and uh, meshes pretty well, I think. Yeah, it's know? great. It's great to hear those 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 two. You, that's not something you normally hear. <laughs> you know, someone no. doing finger style banjo and then the claw hammer is not something yeah, you normally you know, hear together. But it, it does it does complement really well on that. I think it's I think so too, and, and that's probably due to Laura's more sympathetic. Uh, right. Approach to things. She's not know. taking up a lot of sonic <laughs> no. sonic space on that. Yeah. But she's uh, the people keep telling me the Climber style is so easy. It's like walking, no problem. It's like I can't. I just don't get it at all. Interesting. You know. So, but she's she's great at it, and uh, yeah, she'll be doing. Um, we'll, well, actually, we'll be doing that song at the Atwoods. Um, it'll probably we're starting a um, uh, the beginning of a ten day tour, and uh, yeah, that's on Wednesday, March eighth at nine fifteen. And, uh, yeah, so we'll definitely be doing the, the banjo duet. Um, it never sounds quite, That's I mean, good. I play it when I do solo shows, but it never sounds quite as right to me as it does when we're playing it together. So Now, is she a, is she a banjo player first, or is she a guitar player She kind of plays, She's. She, I think she plays more banjo than, than guitar, but she kind of plays everything. She plays uh, banjo, some guitar, she plays uh, violin, oh, wow. uh, she plays a little bit of mandolin, ukulele, piano, um yeah. Nice. Wow. Yeah. That's and great. she's and she's got a beautiful voice. And she's going to be opening for this this yeah. show. And, right? um, so yeah, and um yeah, and I sh- I and I should not fail to mention that she is a really great songwriter too. Uh many of her songs just break my heart, you know. She's uh, recorded uh, a couple albums on her own and three albums with her sister Meg as the the Baird sisters and uh say half of those albums are songs that um that uh, Laura has written. And there's just some real buttes among Great. them. Uh, I, I wanted to talk about the your your, and this doesn't really apply to this last piece that you played, but the piece before that, the Mother's Day, and some of these other pieces. There's a kind of an interesting sound. It's an alternate tuning on a lot of these mm-hmm. on a lot of these pieces. Yep. And how are you how are you coming about that? Are you are you coming up with when you're writing? Are you coming up with kind of the melody first, and then saying, well, this this alternate tuning will work for this melody or are you kind of playing around with alternate tunings and then suddenly you come upon oh wow that's an interesting melody to go with that alternate tuning i'm just kind of curious how that fits into your writing it's definitely the latter um the i i haven't played in standard tuning and probably going on 40 years (laughs) which isn't to say that i can't but i just i I, there was something about standard tuning you know if i play like a c in standard tuning i don't feel like i own that c you know whereas if i play a c in a tuning that i've made up myself i feel like that's my c you know that makes sense yeah (laughs) i buy that (laughs) it's 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 I don't know. It's it's just a conceit, I suppose. But for me, the um, the less I know about what I'm doing, the more able I am to write uh, something. And if I feel like I'm getting stuck in a rut, if I'm repeating myself, or if I'm just not able to get something out or to find a new piece of music, generally I, it's time to invent some kind of a new tuning. The other uh, roadblock that I kind of throw in my way is that I use these uh, partial tunings, or partial capos, I should say. Um, I started cutting up capos with a hacksaw back in cul-de-sac days. Initially, it was because the band didn't like waiting for me to retune between songs. They're like, oh, right. come you got to keep we're, it going. It's yeah, a rock band, we're, right? We're losing, yeah. we're losing our audience, man. We're the momentum, you know. So I had this idea that if I just uh, threw a 
uh, I was thinking, well, I played mostly the melody on the top couple strings. What about if I cut a capo in half and just like barred the bottom strings but left the top ones open? But, you know, I, I forgot, of course, that that changes the whole scale and the, <laughs> and the key and everything else. But it, it very soon became like a, um, a, a way to write. Uh, oh, material wow. to come up with pieces of music that I w- wouldn't have thought of otherwise. Right. For, for those who don't know, the capo is kind of cover. It's a it's a bar that covers all all the strings. Right? Normally, all yeah, the strings. In my case, it just covers yeah. some of the strings, wow. and the other strings are open. So I can play the strings that are below the capo as well as above. Oh, I see. And um, wow, basically, a piece of music is a way of navigating this unfamiliar terrain, and so that's that's how i write my music and most of uh most of my pieces are one tuning one partial capo one song i don't really have any songs that are interesting in, yeah, so there's so, not multiple songs coming out of a particular no, no. A particular architecture okay so that's some somebody asked me to estimate um you know how many tunings i've come up with and i if i include like the cul-de-sac records and the and all my solo guitar ones i've probably got more than 100 different tunings uh wow. All together on those things, and and, and in combination with the capos, that's 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 yeah. probably <laughs> yeah many hundred. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. Wow. So, but like I say, I I just it, I like I like not knowing, and I like having to um, cut a new path to to find something, and. Um, yeah, I don't know. The, 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 for some reason, the more I know, the less the less I can do. Yeah, yeah. Something and, about exploring the experimentation yeah. of it is 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 gonna gonna help you compose in, in a way. That's, that's and it, it may be just peculiar to me. You know, people think that oh, uh, you know, well, uh, what's what's wrong with standard tuning? And there's nothing wrong with it. There's uh, you know, there's players that have been exploring standard tuning their whole lives and still haven't gotten to the bottom of it. It's an amazing tuning for what it allows you to do, but. For me, I, I I need to do I need it, for me another way works better. Yeah, I mean you know? I I'm thinking of I'm thinking of of composers like Harry Parch mm-hmm. and Raymond Scott who would build their own instruments in order to write, right? So they had something in mind and they and that's and, and it's it's not like you're building your own instrument, but in a way you are. You're you're you're, yeah. you're you're breaking up the capo and you're coming up with these alternate tunings, and that's forging a path. And that's that's really inspiring. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a little bit. Uh, I mean, you mentioned Parch. You know, I was uh, a fan of Harry Parch in high school. I wrote letters to him in the early seventies. Oh, 70s. is that right? I, wow. I still have it home. And um, did he ever respond? Yeah, I got he letters did. back from wow. him. I was supposed to actually go meet him in uh, nineteen seventy four, and he died two months before I was uh, wow. planning to go visit him. Um, I got to. I, I still went out there for the trip and ended up meeting uh, Dan Lee Mitchell, and, uh, who was overseeing his his uh, instruments and was like his. Uh, production guy so you got to see some of those instruments yeah yeah, oh wow those are incredible all those gongs and and bells and all that stuff (laughs) he had like a whole yard of that stuff yeah yeah interesting so Parch was an influence but certainly like Cage's uh, prepared piano that kind of thing too of like the different sounds that you can get by doing something that is non-traditional to the insides of the piano so the idea of like using a partial capo that didn't seem that outre to me at all. It just seemed kind of like a means to an end, you know. Right. Well, maybe we should play another track off of off of my Garden State since we're kind of on that record. Do you? Is there a is there a, another piece that would maybe something where you uh, use the the partial capo? Oh, let's do let's do Alcor Gardens. Sure. So Glenn Jones is here. We're playing his music. He's got a show coming up at Atwoods on March 8th. Is that right? March 8th, Wednesday. March Mm -hmm. 8th. And uh, we're giving free tickets away. So give us a call, 617-552-4000. 
1-800-227-4686. This is Free Association. Oh,
That's music from Glenn Jones's record, My Garden State. You're listening to WZBC 90.3 Free Association, and Glenn Jones is here. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's a, that's an improvisation. Um, I was talking about uh, that, that sense of um, uh, place that's kind of a duet between me and a New Jersey thunderstorm. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So the windows were open? Uh, that- actually, that one was one that uh, Laura made the recording of the thunderstorm. Oh, nice. And uh, sometimes when I'm uh, doing improvs in the studio, I'll put something else on the headphones while I'm playing, which isn't necessarily... You won't necessarily hear it, but it's all sort of responding to something that the audience doesn't hear. But in that one, I just love the way the thunderstorm sound is, yeah, so we included great. that as well. It's great. That kind of white noise is, you know. Yeah. I, I often find, you know, for me, actually having white noise like that helps me. Yeah. It helps me actually come up with ideas. I absolutely, you know, it's, I, it's I not definitely a, get it. It's yeah. not a blank canvas, in other words. Yeah, yeah. Well, you brought in another another um, record that hasn't been released yet. Yeah. And and I was just talking with you in the lobby about the, the last time I saw you, I think, perform was at this show, this Waterworks show. And it was it's a museum not too far from here, actually, right down the street. And it's a, it was an amazing concert. It was you and, and working with... with um, Matthew Azevedo. Doing sound design, right? And that, can you talk about this concert a little bit? Sure, sure. Um, it was, uh, it was uh, uh, promoted and put together by uh, Susanna Bolle, who... Has uh, a radio show here. Yeah, right. uh-huh. Uh, as part of the non-event series. And uh, this was um, a concert at the Metropolitan Waterworks Museum, which is a huge three-story structure. Uh, it's an old water pumping station from about a century. It's about a century old, and it continued to function until the 70s. And then in the last 20 years or so, I guess they they turned it into a museum. I had never. I, I didn't know that it continued to function in yeah. the 70s. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that. I, I didn't know it went that oh. late either. But it was it supplied for a long time supplied Boston with all of its water, its fresh water. Wow. So um, they turned it into a museum, and I as long as I've lived here, I had never been to the museum until Susanna began promoting shows there. And um, I saw one and I was just blown away by how spectacular the environment was and the fact that you could put speakers in different places within the space and have sound moving around within the room. It was like it was like going to one of those uh, 3D, you know, uh, theater experiences. It's or an amazing like place. It's yeah. very industrial. It kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, uh, David Lynch's The Elephant Man or something yeah. like that. It's all brass and yeah. steel and uh, copper and uh, it doesn't seem like it'd be particularly friendly to acoustic instruments at all. But once uh, Susanna agreed to have me there, um, I got in touch with Matthew Azevedo, who, along with Laura, is my, Laura's my right hand, Matthew is my left hand in terms of making uh, records. Matthew has done all my um, uh, mastering and EQing and all that stuff. And so once I had the, uh, the gig, I knew I needed help actually pulling it off. And so Matt set up uh, uh, about 20 speakers in the room. That many? That I didn't many. know. I didn't know it was that many. Was 20 speakers. Wow. <laughs> One of the 12 of them were just for the guitar and the banjo, basically a dry signal. And then the other uh, eight speakers were set up in the various different uh, pumping um, machines, the big... Uh, <laughs> and. That's great. And Matt was able to move the sounds that he generated among these things so he could have them moving in uh, 360 degrees in one direction or the other direction or two sounds going in opposite directions, different speeds at the same time. So Matt performed live on some pieces. He um, found 
various uh, field recordings for others. And for other pieces, he took the sound that I was creating, the dry sound, and used that to generate electronic sounds, which he could then move around within the stereo field. That's right. He was taking your your live performance and and kind of feeding that back as a as a um, you know as, a, as another as another instrument in real time, right. in real yeah. time yeah. and um, we had uh, a guy named uh, Carl Ernst was there who recorded the entire concert uh, binaurally using one of those uh, dummy head uh, recording setups which uh, people like Lou Reed and Tangerine Dream and uh, various other people that they have like done. They like to use that setup. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's, uh, you get a very three-dimensional uh, recording that way. And uh, the recording was so phenomenal. I'm not into live records, but this was just uh, something very uh, special. Not only... Um, Definitely, the I think the best live show I've ever done in my hometown. I was glad I got to see it. I, yeah. Like I said, I walked in there. I thought my first impression was this is never going to work, and then it was, you know, it was just it was just remarkable how sort of enveloping, you know, it was. I felt like yeah. Led Zeppelin in there. Might have to say it was just so big. Um, but anyway, the, this album, uh, which is just called Waterworks, uh, is a collaboration between me and Matthew Acevedo, and it's coming out as a Record Store Day release on Thrill Jockey, and um, which is in just a couple weeks. And um, so this is the uh, lead-off track. It's called The Great Pacific Northwest. Great. You're listening to ZBC. This is Free Association.
this is our uh, evening's only cover. This is a John Fahey song called The Portland Cement Factory at Monolith, California. Fahey wrote this in uh, 1964, and I'd like to dedicate it to uh, Robin Amos.
Music right there from Glenn Jones off of his forthcoming record, Waterworks. Glenn Jones is here. Thanks for bringing that in. Sure. Wow, that is that is really amazing. Yeah, Matt, Matt Solo was just uh, mind-blowing. I mean, this is quite a departure, right, from your other stuff. I mean, this is going to be interesting to see how the reception to this is. Well, it's, it is it is and it isn't. Um, I, I kind of feel like this in some ways is uh, hearkening back to my uh, the stuff that I did with my band called Cold Sack. Sack you know? yep. um, certainly we did, we had there was a mix of uh, acoustic and electronic instruments there and kind of a, kind of a crowd rock style of approach to drumming and all that. So, um, but anyway, it's, I, I feel like it's a it's a part of my my makeup and something that I love. So I'm I'm that's really kind of happy to revisit it in yeah, this yeah. context. You know, <laughs> right? So that's a that's a John Fahey cover. Yeah, we should right. talk about John Fahey a little bit because I know that you you had done a recording with with him at one point and. You know, I I hear a lot about this American primitive thing that that you get associated with a lot. And what can you describe what what that means? Is that is that just a finger picking style, or is there something beyond that? <laughs> that that or I'm, I don't know if I, this is a strange question because I'm asking you to describe something that has been a, a term that has been invented. Well, by. it's a, it's a, it, the reason I'm laughing is that um, at one time the uh, the the number of uh, people playing in the so-called American primitive style, you could probably have counted them on the fingers of uh, one hand. You know. <laughs> Uh, it was a, a term that we, we haven't been able to figure out who invented the the term. It was first applied to um, American primitive painters like Grandma Moses and oh, stuff like that. Oh, interesting. I didn't so know that. It okay. was, and all wow. it meant was like um, unschooled or self-taught, you know. And somebody applied the term to uh, John Fahey's guitar playing. And um, in an interview, they, uh, they they said, you know, your music has been described as American primitive and uh, John was happy to be called anything that wasn't folk music, which was where his records are, were <laughs> right. filed pretty much throughout his whole career. So he was, you know, he said, uh, yeah, if you have to call it something, that seems like as good as anything Put it else. in the American primitive section of the record store. Now there practically is one, you know. But the, um, yeah, so for John, all it meant was self-taught or not, uh, you know, unschooled, untrained. Mm-hmm. Um People have asked me since then, you know, what are the, the characteristics of it? And whenever I think I can say what they are, I can think of examples that, that where it doesn't fit, you know. Um, Fahey was influenced by pre-war country blues records, but he also grew up in a household listening to, like, uh, uh, classical music. Um, he came along at a time where uh, kind of long-form Indian Music was, you know, Ravi Shankar and right, stuff like right. that was uh, beginning to be felt among the uh, the kind of the the alternative uh, hippie communities, um, right. and he was certainly influenced by that. And certainly, Robbie Basho, uh, you know, was was very influenced by Indian music and Persian music. But you wouldn't confuse any of what these people did with that music. They kind of um, put their own stamp on it, and. Yet there are people in the American primitive style like Peter Lang or Leo Kotke that you'll find very little in the way of like Indian music or kind of long form style. Their stuff is kind of short and punchy, occasionally blues derived, but not necessarily. So I don't know. It's 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 kind of hard to describe. I'd say maybe the one thing that the music has in common is that that none of these players were looking to make music that was just about being able to play the guitar that was n- it was not about virtuosity for its own sake it was about exploring something that was uh expression de- yeah, yeah exactly right. uh yeah. deeper and more emotional and with Fahey, he was not only 
you know, the, a lot of the new age guitarists that came along after John, uh, John had no use for whatsoever. He thought that their music kind of was superficially pretty and just kind of skimmed the surface, whereas John was like a, a trawler who was digging up the, uh, the, the you know, the, the grainiest, ugliest sediments from the bottom of the, the harbor. He wasn't all about just the uh, sunlight on the surface of the waves. He, was, uh, he wanted to use his music to express not only positive mu- emotions of elation and joy, but also of fear and of paranoia and of anger, which is uh, a lot of what he heard in the, in some of the, the, the blues music that he uh, cared about so much. You know, he said the blues is not about sadness. The blues is about anger. Mm. You know, that's what he heard in Charlie right, Patton's right. music. Oh, absolutely, you know? with the lyrics especially. Yeah, yeah right. So um, I kind of have met the point now when somebody asks me about what is, how would you describe American Primitive is, I don't really know. It's kind of like I kind of know it if you I know it, it if you hear it exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. So, but since since Fahey's time, um, there, like I say, it wasn't a particular kind of music that it seemed anybody wanted to be associated with. But since the advent of Jack Rose, who was uh, so profoundly influential, you now have uh, there there are just scads of players who are in the style who are looking. Um, at the guitar as an instrument for self-expression rather than as an instrument to kind of show off at how good they play their right. their instrument. Right. And so that's, I think, what... Schooled or unschooled. Exactly, right. yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, so you've got uh, Daniel Bachman or locally Rob Noyes has got a, a new record out. And to me, he's very much in that tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Willie Lane. I mean, there's a, the list just goes on and on. And they're not... They're, they're no longer just confined to, you know, America, uh, right. Conrad Assassa in um, uh, Madrid, and uh, there's just people everywhere. There's a lot of British players and Irish players that are yeah, kind of drawing right. on that style. You know, I, I think John Fahey would be astonished today if he were still alive just to see how far his influence had reached. Right. You know? And you had... That record that you made with him with with cul-de-sac was mm. that? Did you reach out to him and and he, did he reach out to you? How how did that come to be exactly? Actually, it was it was something that was proposed by initially it was um, Geffen Records. Well, let's see. John went into a period of decline where he was kind of invisible for almost uh, six, eight years. Right. He he. There, his stuff hadn't been reissued on I CDs. See. His albums were out of print. He had Epstein Bar. He was uh, living in a welfare motel for a while. He was living in his car. Uh, he sold his guitars, and and this was a guy that sold over half a million copies of his Christmas record and made a lot of money in uh, in the the music industry. Not only the records he made. But he started the Tacoma label, which was a very successful right. indie label. But anyway, he had uh, kind of fallen off the face of the earth for a while. And John and I were still in touch and were friends. And um, he was rediscovered, you might say, by Byron Coley, who did an article about him for Spin Magazine, which had the effect of completely revamping his career, revitalizing his career. And Byron kind of did for John what people like John did for Skip James and Book of White, these old blues guys that kind of had disappeared in the 40s and 50s. Right. He was and, rediscovering people quite a exactly, bit, right? Exactly, yeah, right. And so uh, Byron kind of was responsible for getting his career going. And then Geffen had this idea that it might be cool to have uh, John do a record with uh, people like Beck and Sonic Youth and Cul-de-Sac and various other people that were one way or another kind of influenced by him. And uh, that that project never bore any kind of fruit. Yeah. But uh, the label that Cul-de-Sac was recording at the time, uh, Thirsty Year, thought, well, what about 
uh, you know, you and John getting together to do this record. And that record uh, we recorded in 1996, and uh, John called the record The Epiphany of Glenn Jones. And, I was going to uh, ask you where that title came from. That's interesting. Well, the album the album almost didn't happen. It was uh, it became like a psychodrama and kind of a contest of wills, and uh, a contest of wills that that cul-de-sac kind of lost but won also because uh, rather than being the kind of record that I had envisioned we would make, John just dug his in, in his heels and refused to make that kind of record, and so the record that we made instead is. Uh, a record about the making of that record, and uh, <laughs> a documentary of the in, in effect. And, and yeah. what was the what was he pushing for? Um, he wanted to do something that was more uh, in the here and now, and that was not either about his own older material or about cul-de-sac's material, but about a coming together of uh, minds to make something completely new. And it was a test of our friendship. I knew John for a good 25 years or so and considered him uh, a close friend, but it tested our friendship. It and tested our ability to work together, uh, all that stuff. And what were you pushing for in, in contrast I had, to that? I, had the, uh, I think I had a much more conservative idea about the record that we do. I wanted to rework some of John's old songs. I wanted him to come to terms with what some of the some of the ideas that cul-de-sac I had see. I see. and but i think that the record that we made is far more interesting than the record i had envisioned and it was certainly a, a um uh a, a terrific learning experience for me i mean it was uh it was a sock in the stomach when it happened i didn't know if i was going to survive it it was uh wow. completely demoralizing but you know, you start out, you know, playing music to win friends and influence people and meet girls or whatever you start making. And then, but music is about something else. And I think John knew that and he kind of forced us to uh, dig a little deeper and, and find something more meaningful uh, in the record, in, in the record that we made together. Interesting. Well, we so, should try to play a track off of that um, a little later. But um, I want to play. Um, you brought in some stuff here. I brought and, in. Uh, let's and see. I, I to in a couple of this uh, a little bit. Fahey Records. Uh, let's see. This is uh, from a record of his called "The Transfiguration of Blind Joe Death," and I brought this one in because the album was uh, partially recorded here in Boston. Uh, track eleven is a piece called "Brenda's Blues," and it's one of my favorite uh, of John's pieces. And like I say, uh, recorded here in Boston about nineteen sixty-five. Great. So this is uh, uh, John Fahey. Glenn Jones is here. He's, he's playing some of his music and also some of his influences. Number here is 617-552-4686. Glenn is playing a show at Atwoods on March 8th. This is WZBC Free Association. <laughs> Thank you. 
wow, that's <laughs> that's something else. So that was the that was the your collaboration with with John Fay and the band Cul-de-Sac, and that was the piece, the new Red Pony. Glenn Jones is here. Um, that's an amazing uh, amazing piece. Did you write that with with John or, or is no is the uh, the the original song, the Red Pony, is an early uh, composition of John's. Oh, and, I see. Um, so this is the I, new Red Pony. New Red okay, Pony. Right. I played the I played John's part on guitar. Everybody that hears us think that's that's John playing it, and then John does the kind of scattered, fragmented uh, guitar interjections through there. And um, so it, it, I don't know. It's just kind of like um, defying expectations. There's a uh, there's a documentary on John, and one the, the at one point the guy is talking about John. And he plays that track, thinking that he's playing John <laughs> playing new, playing it. Red Pony. I was like, no, nope, that's me. No. Great. And before that was a John Fahey piece, Brenda's Blues, that you that you brought in, and fantastic. <laughs> so you brought in a great record that I guess has not been released yet. Is it's that a, right? it's about to come out. It's a it's a a, ten, a double ten inch record called An Idea in Everything that is, uh, it's coming out on a label called Okrina, and uh, they're based out of Belgium. And this is a trio album. It's uh, an album that I made with uh, drummer Chris Corsano. I'm sure some of your listeners know Chris is amazing. And uh, a guy named David Greenberger. David is a uh, a musician, visual artist, and um, um, he's since, I've known David for a good 40 years, something like that. And this is a little hard to explain. David um, started publishing a magazine uh, about 40 years ago called The Duplex Planet. And David worked at a uh, nursing home in Jamaica Plain. And he was the activities director there. And David is not the kind of person, he's not your typical uh, activities director. He's not going to be, you know, sitting around playing bingo or whatever, you know. Uh, And David being uh, an artistic type, he got this idea that um, he wanted to involve the, it was an all-male nursing home, and he Mm -hmm. wanted to involve the guys that were there in in different kinds of things. his um, I, I noticed when my mom got older, for instance, that people treated her differently than they did when she was younger. And in some cases, they treated her like a child, and that really kind of drove me nuts. You know, a lot of people treat the elder with, with kid gloves. They're very maybe overly solicitous or condescending or something like that. And David won't have any of that. His idea is that these are people that whatever... However, their politics differ from yours or their tastes or what they did for a living or whatever, where they are, we're going to be someday. That's right. And um, that that shouldn't be such a scary place to be. And so David would engage with them uh, using a lot of humor um, and in a provocative way to, um, to get to know them. And when he first, uh, one of the things he did was he thought it would be interesting to just interview these guys. And he would ask them uh, silly questions sometimes. I mean, interesting questions, sometimes silly questions. But I remember in an early issue, he asked, he asked, one of the, he asked a, a bunch of the guys if they would swim in coffee if it wasn't too hot, you know. <laughs> and it was interesting, the answers that he got. Some guys would be like, why are you asking me such a stupid question? That's a dumb question, you know. And other guys would be like, they would, uh, they would, something about the word swim or coffee would provoke an answer that that wasn't necessary what the, necessarily what David had asked, but it was like an interesting answer. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or it was just completely off the wall and not at all related. 
And David would publish these little things in a little digest-sized magazine, and the first issue that he made, he took into the duplex thinking that the guys would like to read what each other had said. They had no interest at all. At the end of the day, David found like three of the issues already in the trash cans, you know. <laughs> but his roommate at home was picking up the issue that David left lying around the apartment, and he said, Dad, David, this is amazing. And the light bulb went on. David was like, it's not for them. It's for everybody else. Oh, right, and so right. David began publishing this magazine. And the magazine, uh, I mean, Lou Reed subscribed. Laurie Anderson subscribed. George Carlin subscribed. Wow. Terry Zwei. I mean, not only famous people, but he had probably about Penn and Teller were big fans of the magazine. And if you ever see the movie Ghost World, there's a scene in there where Thora Birch is arguing with the guy at the video store. And while they're arguing, he's in the process of stocking uh, <laughs> a, a little stand with magazines. And it's all back issues of the duplex plan. Oh, that's great. So I that's great. A, a great nod too. to duplex plan in, exactly. in the movie, right? So um, at some point, uh, the duplex plan in the Jamaica Plain closed, and David moved out to uh, uh, New York State, and he began putting together his, uh, he began, he continued uh, interviewing the elderly in Red Cross shelters and nursing homes, and um, basically putting together these uh, shows where he would um, make a whole evening's enter- entertainment out of these things that he, out of interviews that he had conducted with the elderly, and then putting them together with music. And he did one in L.A. where Los Lobos was the band that did the music. Mm. He did a series of shows in New York where um, a s- uh, series of Sundays, over four Sundays over the course of a month, and he had members of the Sun Ra Orchestra and an RBQ and Robin wow. Hitchcock, people like that, uh, perform the music with him. Well, Chris Corsano, being a younger guy, didn't really know anything about the duplex at all. And I introduced David and Chris to one another at a barbecue that we were both at in 2012. And it turned out that they lived only 15 minutes from each other, a couple hours north of where the barbecue was happening. And they got together mm-hmm. after after this event. And David gave Chris a bunch of back issues of the magazine and some of the CDs he nice. made. And Chris was blown away by it. He was an instant convert to what David was doing. And uh, so he asked uh, David what may have seemed to, to seem to him like an obvious question because Chris knew both David and me. He said, how, how come you and Glenn have never worked together? You've known right. each other for 40 years and we had no answer. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, Chris Corsano put together this project. We got together in uh, one February, winter day in February, and over the course of three days, recorded this uh, this hour-long uh, record. Wow. And so uh, you'll get a sense of what where David's coming from, from the stories on this record. But uh, like I say, some of the stories are absurd, some of them are funny, and some of them are like the dark night of the soul, you know. So this is one of my favorites on, on the record. It's called uh, Magnet Sun Collide. In the history of the world, there was a number of planets, and uh, they all turned by the influence of the sun and the moon. They rotated, and they... Uh, Well, the thing that people feared most was that the planets would bump into each other, collide. And uh, one did collide, and the pieces fell to the Earth. And if you find the pieces, they're magnetic. Wherever you find them, that's where they fell. And they were magnetic before they fell. They fell to the Earth, and that's where the people find them and pick them up. 
They're magnetic from the sun, not from the colliding. All magnets got that way from the sun. philosophical in, a lot of things I believed in firmly have proven to be illusory. But I was born an optimist, and despite all the negative happenings of recent years, I think I'm still an optimist. I think, I know, that the inherent decency of people will prevail eventually. Despite the dreadful happenings in the world, I believe that there will come a time, perhaps, of peace and decency, and maybe even brotherhood, that very, very dated word. Hey, Dave, last night I saw Ringo. Honest to God, he was on TV last night. He was on, uh, what's his name? Mike Douglas. And he looked good, very good. He had that beard. The latest picture that he's made that's come out is the caveman, and they showed some of that. He looked good. For Christ's sake, he looked better than he did when he was drumming. I really saw what Ringo looked like. A regular haircut and a beard. Same beard he's always had. He's married and has a daughter. Nice looking wife. I'll tell you something that shocks me. I couldn't pay much attention to these people because I had to think myself. But I could not believe what I heard. Ringo is not from this country. He comes from England. He's from this country now, but he wasn't originally. I thought he was from Nashville. I guess they all came from England. I think Elvis Presley came from Nashville. I think, but I'm not sure. All those singers come from down south anyway. Another thing, they, they have a girl I've seen on TV who looks exactly like Marilyn Monroe and built like her. Of course, she's got to be trained, Hollywood style. And they got a boy who can sing like Elvis Presley. That looks just like him, too. He's got to be trained, though. And they got a guy who looks just like Humphrey Bolton. Exactly. Until he opens his mouth and that's it. Gives it away. But they got to train them. They can't take them right off the streets. But, I don't know. It's like Ted Lewis said, though. You be you, not me. And he was so right. Free Association, WZBC 90.3. Glenn Jones is here. Thanks for bringing that in. <laughs> that, was, that was outstanding. I love the spoken word and the, the, whole, yeah. the, whole, the whole concept of the record is great. We just had someone call in and say that there was a show on ZBC in the early 80s where someone would read Duplex Planet. <laughs> I mean, only on ZBC would you get a call like that. That's fantastic. 
I love it too. Uh, David told me when he was doing a show in uh, New York, uh, one of the musicians that was playing with him was Marshall Allen from the Sun Ra oh, Orchestra. Yeah, right. and, and Marshall, I mean, I probably saw Sun Ra 60 times in their heydays or something over the and years. Who now leads the Yeah, the now orchestra, leads the group. Right? And so I said, wow, you played with Marshall. You know, what, what did Marshall say about what? He said, I dig what you're doing, man. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's great. So uh, you brought in a Jack Rose, a Jack Rose record. Yeah, uh, I mentioned that. This? I mentioned you know John Fahey is like the, uh, I guess, uh, well not I guess he is the, the the person that had the the greatest influence on me as as a musician, but also as a thinker. John was a very provocative and uh, kind of cantankerous, but um, he didn't accept um, kind of easy. You know, if you said, "Hey, John, it's great to see you." Would why? What are, what's so great? You know, I mean, and it wasn't just to be a, a jerk or to be annoying or whatever, but I mean, he was genuinely curious. And I've never met anyone who was still tr- at, uh, in, in his last years, he was still trying to understand the things that had happened to him in childhood that made him the the man that he was. Uh, he was uh, endlessly curious and provocative and um, uh, just a very hard person to describe. But the other person that, uh, uh, besides John, that has had uh, such a profound influence on me, I, I mentioned earlier, is Jack Rose. And um, Jack came along at a very uh, important uh, point in my life. I had uh, just been uh, canned from a job that I'd held for 23 years and went through a period of uh, uh, real uh, depression, uh, you know, you work someplace that long, and your sense of identity and who you are sure, is right. kind of based on on the people you work with and the people you work for, and the the, and the world that knows you for those associations. And it was uh, during this period that Jack came along and just uh, not only um, brightened up my life, but he, um, as we got to know each other, he proposed that I accompany him on a month long tour of Europe and the UK. And before I even thought about it very carefully, I said yes. And um, anyone that was fortunate, uh, who was fortunate enough to see Jack play, knows that Jack was an absolute, for, absolutely ferocious player. And um, I didn't really think before I played that I'm going to be on the road with this guy for a month, and he eats other guitar players for breakfast. <laughs> I mean, uh, to yeah. me, Jack was the, the, the heavy hitter, yeah, yeah very much so. Yeah. And I mean, if you talk to people today, like uh, Steve Gunn or Kian Nugent or Meg Baird or, or anybody, um, they'll tell you that Jack is one of the reasons that they're playing music today. Mm-hmm. He just uh, left a huge. Um, mark on everyone that met him and me as much as anyone else. Um, So I was a little worried suddenly that I'd said yes to this tour where I was playing with a guy who was a a superhuman on the guitar. But also, uh, Jack and I had just uh, become very good friends and I was worried that spending 24 hours a day, seven days a week with somebody on the road, uh, we might not be so close friends when we got done. That often happens, right? But um, not at all. At the end of the uh, the, at the end of the tour, we were closer than ever. We didn't have a single disagreement or crossword. And uh, I count Jack as uh, among uh, the very best friends I've had in my uh, lifetime. And I didn't know that I would not be playing music today if it hadn't been for Jack. But anyway, so I wanted to end my little um, uh, my appearance here on your show with uh, uh, one of my favorite. Um, Jack Jack didn't make any bad records. In this past year, uh, four of his uh, uh, key records have been reissued um, on Three Lobed and on um, um, 
I'm forgetting the name of the other label, but anyway, go out and get any Jack records, Jack Rose records that you can find. Uh, this is a piece from uh, Dr. Ragtime and his pals uh, called Soft Steel Piston. It's uh, Jack covering a uh, Sylvester Weaver song, and it's a duet uh, between Jack and uh, another guy that lived in Boston for a long time, time named uh, Micah Blue Smalldone. Oh, and yeah. uh, I'm very fond of this particular piece. Great, great. Uh, this has been great. Thanks so much for coming. This oh, is thank you for having me, Brian. Really, it was really, great, great really for me loved, too. Really loved hearing all the all the all the music. And uh, once again, uh, Glenn's going to be performing at Atwoods at March eighth. And uh, if you have any questions about that, give us a call six one seven five five two four six eight six. And this is we're going to end with this Jack Rose piece. Thanks again. Thank you, Brian. One, two.